Hi everyone, it's your host Mandy Bynum. Welcome to another episode of Equality Matters from the Race Equality Project. I got to record today with Hani Fazel. He is someone I consider a friend, a role model, a mentor, and a teacher. Quite literally, 90% of the facilitation content I use was influenced by or, or taught to me by Hanif and his amazing co-founder, Fruini. Hanif has an amazing life story, uh, and it's clear that the work he does is, is a true calling. The way that he and Fruini, co-founder uh, of the Center for Equity and Inclusion, pour their entire being into their facilitations and partnerships with different organizations is such a gift to witness, and I'm so grateful that I get to experience uh, these facilitations on a regular basis. Um, they don't let anyone off the hook and certainly don't make the work easy for their partners, but holy smokes, do they go deep and straight to the heart of equity and inclusion and anti-racism in a way that is deeply, deeply compassionate, honest, and really, really moving. So it goes without saying that my conversation with Hanif gets super deep to the point where this self-proclaimed, physically unable to cry lady just lost it. I'm so excited for you all to hear this conversation. Enjoy. Cool. Let's go for it. Let's see. Let's see All right. <laughs> Sunday morning vibes. <laughs> I am so excited to have Hanif Fazel, who is the CEO and founding partner of Center for Equity and Inclusion. Center for Equity and Inclusion works with partner organizations, school districts, foundations, and community leaders to strategically and urgently advance equity and inclusion efforts. Together, they're focused on building a thriving organization that models the principles of equity and inclusion internally while providing the highest level of services externally. Hanif, thank you so much for joining me on this lovely Sunday morning. Thank you. Thanks for uh, making the time to connect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's so much I want to talk about. We only have so much time. Um, but what I'm really most interested in is uh, after seeing your work, I see you as basically like a missionary um, for equality and equity. And I'm curious to know how you got into this work or what drew you to this work. Yeah. Um, well, I think two things like on, I think everybody who's engaged in this work probably has um, moment or slash many moments uh, on the more personal side that just grounds them in this work. And it, it moves the work from, work to more, um, more just a purpose of, of life and a purposeful way of living life in a lot of different ways. And so left the picture and I, my father was out of the picture in a young age and I didn't really have any place to go. So I was more or less, uh, I had a girlfriend who was 19. So she'd get on apartment leases. And, um, at that time I was making $3 and 35 cents an hour. So you can date me. And I was um, working part-time, going to school, all that kind of stuff. And so we ended up in a kind of very low-income housing complex in downtown Portland called The Civic. And I, I still can remember it vividly for a lot of reasons, but in particular, it was all the utilities were paid in the rent for $194 a month. And that was at the time 
it, it was uh, all we could afford. And so there was something about being in that space in a lot of different ways. So um, for me, when I was in that space, everywhere you looked, oppression was happening. So whether it was the prostitution happening in the hallways or whether it was the uh, homelessness that was all around me or whether it was the drug dealer across the way, almost everywhere you looked, people were just trying to survive. There was no sense of like um, agency, no sense of um, mattering in, in that kind of sense. Um, so there, there was no no real feeling that um, you could have impact in the space. It more felt like the space was always being done to you. So for me being in that space um, where it literally felt like um, you just didn't matter, like who you were, what you had to offer, your experience, none of it just seemed to matter. Because at 16, it would for me, it would have been like if I mattered, I wouldn't be in this kind of environment, it wouldn't look like this, it wouldn't sound like this, it wouldn't feel like this, we wouldn't be acting like this. I mean, a bunch of different things. And so mm-hmm. for me, being in that space had a really profound impact on me, like a, a, a very profound impact on me. And one of the impacts long-term it had on me was both a deep, very deep empathy for people who experience space um, the way I did, in a way that you feel like you don't matter or whether you feel as if your potential, there's no place for your potential to grow or move. or And in general, it became almost a mission for me to be looking at how we create spaces where people aren't just surviving, but they're thriving, and in particular, people of color. And so if I look at that experience when I was younger and combine it with being a kid of color who grew up in a um, predominantly white environment where, again, it was really evident that who I was, my experiences um, were just didn't matter um, or that I could never find any sense of self in those experiences. In fact, where it felt like my sense of self was being oppressed mm. in some ways in the school experience, much more than that civic um, all of those left just a very deep-seated, deep-seated uh, realization that the way we've organized the space have not really been built for people like me. Mm. And um, working with kids and families for over 20-plus years in low-income environments, it just reinforced that um, understanding that regardless of how much intellect was in those communities, how much determination or commitment or there were still these barriers and barriers and barriers that made it very difficult for communities of color to thrive, um, to be self-sustaining. So that's, you know, in a lot of ways on a personal side, there's so much more about on the personal side, those experiences have played a huge role. On a, on a more professional side, I got a, a chance to be in a nonprofit before we were using words like equity, diversity, and inclusion. And, uh, Long story short, the nonprofit wanted to really move forward around this work around equity and inclusion. We call now call equity and inclusion. And so over a What did you call it? I didn't I don't even know. Like diversity work. I think it was just diversity. We were doing some diversity stuff. I see. Um, but it was an all white nonprofit. I had been brought in to start up a program there and within a very short amount of time the, the program expanded in a significant way. And the organization went from predominantly white to very diverse based on the kind of the influx of folks this program I was building out brought in. And it just brought a lot of energy around figuring out how folks 
um, of color can really thrive in that organization. And um, with, again, without a roadmap, without any kind of language around it, for a seven year, over seven years, the organization dove in a very deep way into this work. And what it allowed me to see over seven years is this process of transformation, that it was possible for an organization to move from one way of being, one way of looking, one way of operating, to a whole new way of being, looking, and operating. And uh, so that process of transformation and seeing that we could build spaces in which um, people, colors, voices were centered, where um, diversity was truly embraced at every level and used in a lot of different ways for what it has to offer, you know, new perspectives and innovation and creativity and all that. And that we create cultures in which weren't perfect, but people of color could thrive um, alongside white folks. Um, all of that, that experience had a big profound impact on me and being able to see that, oh, we could, we can actually transform the way we work and the way we work with each other. Um, and that in a lot of ways is the launching pad of the center. Once I understood that and really understood the skill set that I could bring to it, it began the, the transition of me moving from that nonprofit to starting the center. So I heard you say that was a long story short. <laughs> and as you're telling that story, I imagine you like spinning upward with your arms open in like a ray of light. <laughs> because that's how fast that seemed to happen. I'm I'm curious to know, and, and it's amazing. And I'm curious to know when you were 16, did you realize this then? Like, did you have the language to say, like, it is my duty and my calling to do something about this? Or like what was the the pivotal moment and what age were you when you knew that this was your life work? Um, it definitely wasn't 16. At 16, I was like, F this. I don't give an F. I can't, you know, I, there wasn't language for me, nor was there consciousness for me, for me to understand what was happening. You know, on mm. the side, I was mad at my mom and the world and, you know, and, um, just kind of in constant reaction, um, making bad choice after bad choice and just kind of in a lot of ways fitting into the environment that I was in. Um, and so I think at 16, the only thing I was trying to do was survive. And, and that was questionable on a daily basis. And so, um, my experience is that people step into their purpose over time and that we don't fully grasp what our purpose is in life. We may have inklings or ideas or fantasies or, you know, there's certainly, there were moments when. Um, and it wasn't at 16, but as I got older that I started to begin to think about, um, Hey, I want to make a difference here. I want to give back. And I, I imagine that's where it started for me around the purpose was like, um, you know, my first real, I mean, I worked at, you know, a million, not a million, but a bunch of different jobs, like a video store and a, know, all that kind of stuff. But my first kind of job of purpose in that sense, um, was working with, uh, kids who were in the system. So both gang affected kids and then also sex offenders um, who were in the system um, and um, both um, started to give me a purpose. When I started to see kids who were living on the margin, backing out in all kinds of ways, um, who people did not see possibility in, in a lot of different ways, that for me started to spark something. In a lot of ways, for a good part of my life, 
uh, well, my name, my name has a meaning. The meaning is true believer. Mm. And it wasn't starting to click. That's where I think maybe started to click is in that first job. It was like, oh, part of my work is to believe in people in ways that they don't believe in themselves. Mm. And um, believe it until they can and see the possibility in people. And while that's that was initially the purpose, it, it turned more into a tool over time, not necessarily a purpose for me over time. But that initially started me thinking about there's something bigger than myself for to contribute to. And I may have something to contribute to that. And I think that was a transition for me, believing that I wasn't really worth much, had nothing to really give, just try to make it day to day to wait a minute. I may actually have something of worth to yeah. the world. That started to click. It started to feel good. It started to feel like I had something, some purpose. Yeah. And yeah. so when you, when you took that first job, why so you were working, we'll, we'll call them odd jobs for lack of a better term. What brought you to that organization and what made you interview or apply? Well, it's a funny story because um, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Clerks. Sure uh, did. <laughs> when they, so I was working in a video store. And- Wait, sorry, honey. For those who are much younger than us, can you describe that movie real quick? Uh, what do you want to say? Two white, uh, white guys, two white guys not really doing a whole lot with their lives. One working at a video store. I forget what Kevin Smith was doing. but I, um, Oh, yeah. Basically, just kind of watching, looking at their lives. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyways, when I watched that movie, I was working in a video store. And I was like, oh, my God, someone made a video movie of my life. Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm like basically doing nothing, um, but kind of enjoying it in an odd way. And um no responsibility. And anyways, I'm living this kind of life. I'm not doing much. Um, at that point, I had dropped out of Portland Community College, I think, the first time. I was kind of trying in and out, basically, at community college. And um, there was a um, local um, youth center. Um, so people who were in the system would have to go, residential treatment center, excuse me. Um, and one of their staff members who worked the graveyard shift would come in. And I, to this day, I don't even know what it was. Like, I would just because I was, I was the video store guy you would always talk to. I always talked to people, ask them questions. And it was kind of a small community video store, so I knew everybody in there. So uh, he would come in, and I would just randomly ask him questions. And every time he came in, I was like, well, tell me about the kids who work in there. Tell me about, like, what you do. Or tell me. And one day he was like, yo, you ask way too many questions. If, you, if you're so interested, why don't you go apply for a job there? And I was like, I don't, I don't know anything about working with kids. I never, you know. But something mm-hmm. had me go and apply at that job. I to this day it makes no sense when I relook at the situation. But um, I did a good enough job that I didn't get the job there. But they sent me to a sister program, mm-hmm. and that is again where once I got the job, I can remember this. That this will tell you listen. That I got that job, and I remember at that time I was getting high pretty much every day, drinking all the time, doing all kinds of stuff, and. Um, I remember going back to my friends and saying, listen, I can't get high. <laughs> I can't get high anymore. I got a real job and like these kids are, you know, struggling and doing this and that. So no more get high. I'm not doing that anymore. I got to like, I got a chance to do something here. And it, it was like little, again, like little micro choices like that. They don't seem big one way or the other, but for me, we're really, it's like a change in lifestyle or, um, you know, getting high all the time represented in a lot of ways, just like floating through life. 
<clears throat> and yeah. uh, for me, it was like, oh, here I have a chance to be somebody. And um, I want to try it. Hmm. That's really, really cool. And I, that feeling of lifestyle change is, it, I, I feel that, um, I, f- I feel like we all have that moment in that space between 18 to 23. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That's thank you for, for sharing all that. Um, and I would love to talk so much more about that maybe for a different episode. Um, but we got to get to the rest of the questions that right. I have about CEI. So, um, something that the center is pretty well known for is the deep transformative work that you're pretty upfront about in your process. Um, and knowing that you do work with most majority, we'll say like Pacific Northwest organizations um, and or organizations that are more on the nonprofit public sector side, um, and the reason I wanted to talk to you is because while the Race Equality Project is primarily focused on tech, working with you and working on projects with you, there are so many similarities between the the things that happen within the technology sector and the organizations that you work with. The only difference I find is that the organizations you work with are closer to the impact, a little bit closer. but that that proximity in itself almost makes it harder for people to transform because they think they're already doing the work. Yes. And so when you when you go in and talk about transformation, what is typically what kind of pushback do you get or well, at this point it's like, well, if you don't want to do it then we we're too busy anyway. But uh, well, maybe when you were getting started and and really wanting to hold on to that integrity, like what were the things that you ran into either in the negotiations for the contract or when you first started your initial sessions? Yeah, um, it's a great question because I feel like um, to some degree we still get it, not as much because I think the work uh, for a lot of different reasons, but um initially and to today it always revolves around the same thing i mean i think if when we got into the building the center part of why i wanted to do it was traditionally when people were engaged in equity work they had two ways to go about it they could either do like a two-day at best like equity training or diversity training whatever you want to call it and people would have their kind of epiphanies around whatever it may be and then they would just naturally ask like how do I, what do I do with this? But there was no follow-up. There was no anything else or they'll do their implicit bias training and they'll get a sense that, you know, they have built-in biases, you know, on and on and on. But how you integrate that into HR hiring practices or training managers or on and on and on, um, or in a marketing standpoint, how you look at how it shapes your advertising. Um, the trainings don't always do that. Or you could, you could do kind of assessments and assessments um, do a great job of highlighting kind of from a policy or protocol place, where are those policies that are unintentionally um, perpetuating disparities that you want to actually close, right? Racism, mm-hmm. or, you know, racial disparities, gender disparities, all of that. Again, oftentimes with the assessment stuff, they may surface where the um, 
choice points are or where the pain points are in equity, but there may not necessarily be the will or the passion um, or the connection to these issues willing to really tackle some of the hard term or long term work around this. So to me, that that and that passion is often built in those kind of consciousness raising that country raising work. So for us, we wanted to really think about how do you build both? How do you establish enough connection uh, to these issues? So it's personal to people um, where people could really have common language and framework and be able to understand what's shaping how they see the world and how they're operating within an organization. And then also then begin to be really strategic in how you then, um, help people address this in policies and practices and um, use those assessments. So now you've both made the will, the passion, the commitment, the vision around this work. Um, and now you have assessment type work that you can begin to locate. Where is this stuff happening? And then what do we need to do to address it? So to do that kind of long-term work, um, that none of that happens in a day. None of it happens in two days. It certainly doesn't happen in two hours of implicit bias training or any of that, or it doesn't have, happen in a book you read. It is a long-term partnership. So when you think about, when you ask about where's the resistance, the the resistance always is and continues to be around time and people's willingness to uh, spend the amount of time they need to go to cultivate both individually and on the respective teams, whether it's a leadership team or whether it's in the role of an executive director or CEO or whether it's, um, you know, managers, whatever it is going to be, cultivate the amount of time needed or use the amount of time you need to cultivate the kind of culture an organization needs to hold in place a commitment to equity and inclusion and the actual shifts and practices and policies and all that, right? The actual technical yeah. shifts. So the resistance typically revolves around time and people's um, un, just ambivalence around, around that and unsure of like, hey, where is this going to lead to? Certainly, it revolves around resource and people willing to spend um, the type of dollars that they want to. It's, it's always interesting to me that, um, you know, if there was a tech issue in an organization, um, if there's a new database system um, that uh, was could track things um, in a different way for organizations, um, organizations could pay up to a million dollars to change their database, their training around that, all that kind of stuff. Um, when you think about that from an equity standpoint, oh, hey, you have you have a glitch in your system, a significant one. The system is a glitch, yeah. right? Um, people have a hard time allocating resources to that, even though it's churning out uh, historic and persistent disparities. Changing that system is people have a hard time with. Um, and so working through both the time commitments, working through the resource how they resource this or begin to prioritize time, prioritize resource um, in this always initially is some of the challenges. I think we would agree on what the reason is for that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, it's certainly when you come down to racism or when you come down to, um, and again, racism, not like, um, KKK skinheads, you know, like overt racism where people hold animus or prejudice toward a particular group. Not talking about that type of racism. We're talking about the more um, subtle, internalized racial supremacy. Um, This idea of, um, 
you know, I'm a good person. All we have to do is just be good people and things will get better, that kind of thing. Or, right. um, you know, the constant rationalizing about why expenses should go in other places. So in other words, we've not, one way I think about it is um, at white people in particular have not been conditioned to really consider the experiences of people of color in any profound kind of way. It's not how we organize our spaces when we're making decisions around policy or anything like that. No one's conditioned in spaces to say, what are the racial impacts here? Right. Because why, why, why do that? Right. You're not, there's no no incentive, no incentive. There's no, in fact, organizations have made billions of dollars actually doing the opposite of pressing people of color. So um, there's not a conditioning for white people to center the needs of people of color, even when disparities are happening, racial disparities are happening right in front of them. So it's that kind of like internalized racism by good, that they're not even necessarily seeing. It's like complete blind spots in that way for them. Until there's a lawsuit, until the disparities become so big, until we have a um, you know, Black Lives Matter movement happening and it's really pushing organizations, you know, it's, it's a threat. So there's incentive to whiteness to do it. Um, we don't, we haven't really seen it up to this point. So it's that kind of, you know, well-meaning white people who just haven't, to, which is a blind spot when it comes to and a deep one, deep-seated blind spot or a deep-seated um, racism happening within them that they're not even conscious of. Yeah. And so, so many follow-up questions. My first one is we'll get to the the deep seated racism in a second, but I this year has been nuts, and I know over the summer we talked about. I think both of us probably at some point had to take like a literal mental health break, mm-hmm. um, because of the influx of business. And for me personally, it was a lot around like I don't do that. You can, I'm getting a ton of inbound calls, but I'm not going to do a one-time unconscious bias training. I don't care how long you and I have known each other. I'm not going to do you this favor because I, I can't, I just can't do that. It's because it's not, it's not what I do. Um, and I wonder what that looked like for you this year and what were some of the challenges you faced in some of the big names that were coming at you and some of the big contracts and incentives, but like not really the, the real integrity around the work. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Um, it's a little bit of both. We've had more people now interested in the long-term work. In some ways it's kind of like, I feel like CI's commitment around this where we were saying um, no to a lot of people in the past or learning to say no a lot of people in the past and stuck with this commitment around like anywhere from a one to four year engagement with an organization. Right. And we were just like staunch about that. Like, and now it's allowed to kind of be ahead of the game in that sense. So now when people are looking for something a little more meaningful or their employees of color are demanding something more meaningful, we become a viable option now. Um, and so there's more organizations who are open to something long-term than there weren't. And within that, um, there still is, um, you know, like recently, you know, I'm sure you're seeing all over, there's no shortage of um, chief diversity officer hires, right? Um, and yeah. so that tends to be the panacea. This is some of that internalized stuff, right? It's the, 
um, it's the new panacea for racism or to, for CEOs to show that there is a commitment to diversity equity inclusion is they hire a chief diversity officer. But what they tend to do is they tend to load up one person with all kinds of accountability and responsibilities that become impossible for any one person to do. And subtly, not so subtly, executive leadership teams really absolve themselves from accountability around diversity and inclusion efforts, right? That's the CDO's role. Yep. It's not my role. Yep. Um, and, or everyone else does as well. And so, you know, I can't tell you how many times the chief diversity officer as I met are the most unhappy people in their organizations um, because they're asked to do tasks and work with folks uh, with limited resource or limited teams to do that in ways that just are. So when I think about kind of where this is, I mean, number of organizations saying, hey, we can't really work with you right now because we're hiring a chief diversity officer and that's where we're putting right. our resources. Oh, that one kills me. If you're going to have, you have, you know, 2,000 employees or you have 20,000 employees or whatever. And this chief diversity officer is going to now go train up and do all, I mean, like, so. Um, just again, like Obama solved racism when he was in office, remember? Right. So it's just this kind of lack. And also, you know, to not be completely cynical, I think CEOs, HR leads who are driving these efforts often are in some ways grasping at straws. Like they don't know what to do. They literally do not know what to do. Exactly. Yeah. So like, okay, let me hire someone who can tell me what to do and then I'll do it then. Um, and or, I, let me hire someone who I feel safe with, who right. I can say no to when they bring up these ideas. Right. Exactly. And again, it's once you're in that relationship, there's a power dynamic, right? Cause you're chief diversity officer, you're operating up against a CEO who, you know, and that's if you're lucky, if you are the one reporting directly to the CEO or chief the CEO, right? And more often than that, I've seen chief diversity officers report to the HR person or, you know, the ops or whatever else it is. So there's still one level underneath where they need to be. So again, it's, I'm, I'm talking in broad scopes. It doesn't happen that way in all spaces. But what I am saying is if we count on individuals to be transformative, in a space where we're off the mark here. And it's more of the problem here that this is a collective adaptive issue. This is an issue that an entire organization needs to invest time and energy and resource in both personally, like to be able to build the personal connection to these issues, the personal understanding of these issues so I can cultivate the passion, the boldness I need to move this work. But also we need to get to work at actually doing things differently. How does this shift my practice, my approach and practice as a leader? What does it mean for me to actually shift policies, the you know, protocols within my organization? So that can't be done by any one person. And, anyone and you know what, Hanif, I've also, not only that, but I've also worked with and spoken to companies who like say, we hired a CDO, so we don't need you. Or we are doing leadership training, so we don't need to talk about leadership in your session. It's like, mm, is that person who's doing leadership coaching, are they talking about adaptive leadership? Are they talking about personal leadership? Um, or And or can I speak with them and maybe we can do a session together? And that's like never, never an option. Yeah. I mean, this is all the internalized stuff that like just shows up, uh, that white folks, I just think are blind spots um, in so many ways um, at like a level of racism that is really internalized that you just don't see. Again, like I'll, like I said, um, I've worked with 
organizations that have invested millions and millions of dollars in uh, the ideas of safety, right? So they want to build uh, like the safety protocols in their culture of their organization. And you walk an organization and they can tell you the safety this or safety that, or they have ways they start their meetings around safety and all this kind of stuff. Um, And they wouldn't say we're going to have one person responsible for safety (laughs) and all the accountability on this one person to do safety. Right. And no, they might hire a lead person on it, but they'd have that person on the team or there'd be a process, you know, all that kind of stuff to transform a culture so they're operating around these values. So the same thing when it comes to equity and inclusion, people are still not white folks are still not really understanding the depth of the issue, that this is a deep seated cultural issue within their organization that needs uh, to be addressed and a deep seated institutional issue. That's showing up at every level within every decision. One of the things we say when we're working with um, folks on applying an equity lens is that there is no neutral decision, that every decision you're making, given that we've built organizations for a disparate experience, like historically, they've been founded on, right, um, very overtly, uh, racial hierarchy, that every decision you're making is either perpetuating racial disparities or they're working to disrupt or close them. So literally, it is such a deep-seated issue within our institutions, within our culture, within individuals in those institutions who are operating off of their own biases, um, that I think white folks are either overwhelmed in some ways and feel like this is impossible for me to address. Mm-hmm. And so let me just do something. And that hiring a chief diversity officer is something better than nothing. Right. Um, we just don't really get it. Um, and um, and aren't invested enough personally to actually address it because they've had the privilege of never having to consider or um, connect to these issues. They can um, turn on CNN and see whatever they're seeing and then turn it off and then go and, you know, hang out with their kids and families and do whatever else they're wanting to do. So that that privilege of comfort, that privilege of um, disconnect that, you know, shows up in their their ability to push around these issues, even when there's not a clear roadmap. And I think that's also gets in the way for white folks is they want like this linear, very linear pathway. You do these five steps and you'll turn into an equitable organization. Yeah. How many articles have we seen that like 10 10 steps for inclusion in your workplace? I think about it as like, there's the black squares on Tuesday and then on Friday they're posting, you know, their kids playing in a sprinkler. Right. Right. (laughs) Like, what the – come on. Um, So this brings me to the next thing I want to talk about um, is is the personal stuff for you, Hanif. You're not black, yet um, a lot of the work you do is around anti-blackness. And I imagine that – and your co-founder is black. Um, I imagine there's an acknowledgement of the – the dynamics even within CEI, because I've seen them acknowledged. And how do you see yourself fitting? How do you see your role and your privileges and how you use them to have things resonate deeper with people um, as a person, a brown guy, instead of, uh, you know, an identified mm-hmm. as black person? Yeah, that's super great question. Um, and it's complicated. Um let me say the first thing before 
using them, I think for me is the ongoing work of dismantling them or addressing them mm-hmm. or, or, mm-hmm. or constantly gaining consciousness because it's not just a race. We talk about um, where's brownness in relationship to a system built on white supremacy and anti-blackness, right? So right, it's, right. Com- it's complicated, right? Whereas a brown person, as someone who's both Mexican and um, Indian, Muslim, I can look at the the situation and say, wow, on one hand, part of my culture is getting banned from the United States. On the other part is getting uh, family separations and murders and rapists, all that kind of stuff. So on one hand, there's an experience of white supremacy that is constant. And as a person of color growing up in all white communities, I experienced it in very deep seated ways. At the same time, at the same time, um, I'm in a system that is these pinpoints around white supremacy, anti-blackness, and um, the erasure in a lot of ways of the Native American experience, the colonization of Native Americans, right? None of which of those groups I belong to necessarily. Um, so part of, for me, has been the work of how do I create space for me to acknowledge what is the experience of a white, a brown person in this conversation, the pain points of white supremacy, and how do I normalize that? And not normalize it, how do I acknowledge that or create space for brown folks to be seen and heard who are often left out in the conversation. It often is a black, right. white nation. So how do we create space for that to get seen, heard, understood, and at the same time begin to recognize uh, and do exploration around where does anti-blackness show up within me, right? And I, I think that's actually a conversation for black folks to be having, for brown folks to be having, for white folks to be having, right? All of us need to be in that conversation around that in a lot of ways. But for brown folks in particular, and for me in particular as a leader, it is, especially around this work, um, it is a one priority, like for me to be able to recognize how that shows up, what that looks like for me in space. And it takes on an extra layer when we intersect it with gender in that um, center is predominantly women of color. We have an all women of color executive leadership team, two of which are black women, One's a brown woman, um, uh, two brown women, two black women and me. Um, And so when we start to intersect gender in there, it becomes even more pronounced in that sense. And so part of the work for me initially is just to be able to keep locating, where does that show up? Like, where is, um, where am I getting standing in places that for Laney, who's the black um, co-owner for CEI, is not? Where are we doing the exact same all of a sudden she's getting seen, I'm getting standing for it and she's not right. People like are looking what, can at you give some examples. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you a great example. Um, we were, um, and this one just is resonates with me for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, I'll give you a couple, um, me and Froini were doing a training and, um, and to know like the history of that is I knew, uh, Froini came into relationship with me. I was a director of, of a program at that nonprofit, and she was just a, she was young. She's ten years younger than me, so she was coming into the program and kind of just learning youth development stuff. So, in a lot of ways, I was a mentor for her early on in her career, um, and was constantly working with her on her facilitation and this and that. And we were in New York doing some work with a group out there, and um, and I am. Um, what you would almost call like a perfectionist when it comes to facilitation. Like I am every detail of my facilitation. Someone else, I'm like conscious, 
watching and paying attention to and with my team coaching around. And there was something that Froini did in a session that was fine. It was, it was, it landed the point, but it didn't land. It, it didn't land two other additional points that I thought were important. And so then I just inter- I just interjected and said, okay, and this and this and this, right. And we ended there and I'll never forget. She just looked at me and she's like, why can't you ever just let it go? Mm. Like, do you know that? You know what that looks like for you to come in, me as a black woman, to be standing there, you know, laying out the points. It was fine, and then for you now to come on top and just like say, take that space, take uh, in so many ways. It lessens her, it lessens my credibility, it lessens how people see me in the room. It moves you and like all that stuff. And for me, initially, my initial in- quote intention, right, was like, hey, I see a piece of curriculum that she missed. And I want to add it because I think it is important to add, right? But I didn't have to think about it from a black woman's perspective. Again, when we talk about privilege and what am I not conditioned to in a system of anti-blackness based on anti-blackness, I'm not also conditioned to think about or consider black people's experience and certainly not black women's experience in the space, right? That's an invisible experience to me um, as it's been conditioned for me, right? Um, and, and so those little moments, there's a million of those little moments, right. That I have with Froaney on executive leadership team where I'm constantly trying to figure out where and how do I take up space? Where is it important for me to take up space as a CEO or one way or the other? Um, where do I need to just let go back off? It doesn't need to be said or create space, um, for the black women in the group to have standing, to be able to say and lead in very particular ways. And sometimes they're making decisions that I just disagree with. Like, I'm just like, oh, it's not the way I would go. So where is it like fair to disagree? Like, where can we just disagree and say, and where is it like, it doesn't matter if you disagree with me, like trust, you got you got two powerful, smart black women. They know what they're doing. Trust that they they could actually know more than you, right? right. They could actually see things differently actually possible right like so all of these things are kind of like the Wait, personal can you, oh, sorry honey yeah, can we just stop there real quick pause yeah, for yeah. the cause because i think if you are a white leader or if you are a non-black leader or if you are a male leader can you just say that what you just said one more time <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's possible like I, I think we need to really examine um the role of gender in this for sure. Um, and for white folks, whiteness and, and brown folks, brown, it's more complicated with brown folks, but the idea um, of who, who knows what's our paradigm, what's our paradigm of who, who knows, who really understands where knowledge is held, how knowledge is held, right? Um, who, what's the standard for knowing? And that standard for knowing as I've been conditioned has nothing to do with blackness has nothing and then right. nothing black woman. And certainly the native experience isn't even in that conversation. Right. Um, so to me, that's a white male paradigm. And the closer that you get to white male, whether it's white skin, white women holding power in a very particular way or men and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So part of the reconditioning for me is recognizing that knowledge and knowing and understanding can be held differently, can look differently, can be stewarded differently. And just because it's different than what I would do doesn't mean that it's less than what I would do. Yes. And I have um, to grips with 
in hard conversations. And I've had to have Froaney's commitment to me in relationship to, I, I had to have, it had to be both. Like, I'm not going to say it's art, like in a, in a really effective brown, black, because it's complicated. It's not as easy when it's brown and black, right? Because there's places where as a brown person, I've looked nothing like what the standard of knowing looks like. I've, right. I've had my life been told me I'm not a smart ass, not sharp ass and had to prove 5,000 times over. So it's complicated there. It's, it's like, what about where I get standing? What about, you know, do I have a space in that? And so learning how to negotiate that space has required for Wayne to have the courage, the commitment to me, the commitment to anti-racism, to anti-blackness, to have honest, hard conversation, to put up with my shit in some ways. It also required me to be open to that, to listen to it, to have hard conversation, not be dependent on her for those conversations, but to go dig in. There's no, there's a girth of inf- of readings and learnings that you can do to be able to understand, to be able to locate the experiences of black women and women in this country and what it means to be all that kind of stuff and black men, all that. So it, it pushed me to be in my own space, my own discovery and build passion around that which for me was easier because it's an easy connect for me in that if I go all the way back to the civic, I have my own experience of what it means to be in spaces in which it felt like I didn't matter, where it felt like I was the the bottom of the barrel. Uh And my whole life has been about wanting to make spaces where nobody ever had to experience that. So the thought that I could be participating in that, that I could be actually being that I don't have anything to do with that shit. I don't have anything to do with that. So that's incentive for me to be like, if I really want to live in my purpose, I have to look at where am I perpetuating as a brown person, anti-blackness, the invisibility of Native Americans, right? Gender biases that show up in all kinds of ways. So for me, it's on that lens. It's also then with other brown. I remember being in a, a situation with a brown woman and there was another brown woman that was uh, Froaney was working with that was having issues with her. She wanted to come and talk to this brown woman about that. And in this conversation, me and this brown leader were talking and, and she said to me, you know, what does that tell you about how Froaney is as a leader that they're so scared that they're they're, they're They don't have enough for whatever reason, they're scared to come to her. What does that tell you about her as a leader? And to me, that's the, that, that to me is like the most classic experience of anti-blackness here that it, that has had nothing to do with her as a leader, it had everything to do with the other Brown woman and her anti-blackness and seeing Froaney as scary and all this other stuff that when Froaney shows up fully in her power, uh, when Froaney shows up authentically as herself and doesn't do anything to rock her, people still will not go to her, whether Brown, Black, whatever. So in those moments, I see when you talk about how do I use my privilege I see it's my, like, I have no other choice in that moment to be working with brown folks and unpacking that, challenging that um, so that he doesn't have to be doing that, right? That's not Froaney's work to be defending herself. Um, certainly, that's as I consider her my sister. Like, that. that's my job as a brown person to be working with my brown brothers and sisters to be dismantling that um, because it doesn't actually even serve us. The more we're doing it, the more we just perpetuate this system of oppression, the more we become part, the more white people don't have to do it. We're doing it for them. Um, right. And so for us, it doesn't work. 
for black folks, it doesn't work. And when you talk about the intersection that brown folks can play in this, it's there. It's there for our own personal empowerment, that we live in our own purpose. It's for how we partner effectively with black folks. And it's complicated because we're also being oppressed in a system um, based on white supremacy. So also have needs to be seen and heard and understood as well. And so how there's space there, I think, for a brown person to be um, helpful in this in this work around. Oh, my gosh. I'm not a crier. And I'm like, the tears are just coming out. I don't know how I'm even speaking right now. Um, and I think the reason it it is so touching is because um, that is that is evidence of the work and why why it's hard and why I think a lot of a lot of white leaders have trouble because they don't understand that the work is is actually that deep yet it's also that simple like it's not like you're having to learn how to climb mountains you're just learning how to pay attention yeah pay attention and care and it's scary and it's hard and I think it's easier sometimes for a brown person because I can go back to my own moments right and I can be like I don't want I got in this work because I don't want this to be happening to people. I don't, I don't want to be, I have an acute experience, experience of experiences that are acute, that are like very, very painful, that of racism that I don't want any part of. And I know, I think white folks um, aren't, don't have that. And I think it's part of why they need to be, um, I think they can draw parallels though, you know, and um and I think more important for them to engage in this work because you're right, it is, that's the work right there. And it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing. You know, I'll say this, like when Froini said to me, it's embarrassing, you know, like you, you don't want to do that to someone you care about or any of that kind of stuff. Or, um, and so, you know, the ego is always going to want to keep you comfortable and so and it's easier to not feel embarrassed or it's easier to not feel ashamed. Like I, embarrassment and shame kind of both. Right. Um, mm-hmm than to actually experience it, work through it and move on, you know? Um, And um, there's something there. And also like, I think that is, that is the exemplification of separating the behavior and the situation from you being a bad person because over and over again, equities around making those decisions where what the thinking about the guilt and the embarrassment is less important than what the outcome should be and constantly being willing to move through that pain and through that guilt and through that embarrassment because what's on the other side is worth it. I think that is one of the hardest things for people. For example, well, yeah. like, yeah. Go for it, go for it, go for it. I, I, just this morning, um, I, I, my husband's white. He's from Ireland. And he has his own sense of oppression being Irish. And I, one of the things that really bothers me that where his whiteness shows up is like when he asks where something is, and then I say it's in the pantry, and his response is, it's not there. Like, it is there. <laughs> You just don't see it. Say, I don't see it. Um, because you're, I was this morning, I was like, your whiteness is saying that it's not there because 
<laughs> everything in your bones means that it's not there. Therefore, it's just not there. And like, you don't see it. And I think that is just such a prime example of like, if I, if it's not, if it's invisible to me, then it doesn't actually exist. And like when people, that's why it's so hard for us to talk about or speak up for ourselves because often the response is, no, that's not happening because they don't see it. Yeah, that's powerful what you just said. Like, um, if it's invisible to me, it doesn't exist. I mean, that's powerful, right? Um, and I think a lot of that's there. And I think there's a growing consciousness with white folk that, okay, it is invisible to me. I, I can't see it. Um, so I don't know what to do with it. And then from that spot, I see them in two choice points. I run back to my comfort zone and just say, it's impossible. It's overwhelming. It's over there. It's not me. I know that much, you know, to like, okay, what do I do with it? Um, but I, think I don't like, know to avoid it. Right. You know, and it's interesting, you know, from an organization standpoint, I'm working with this one group's marketing department and um, they're a large national organization and they have a lot of impact, a lot of impact. And um, one of the things I've had to do with them, I don't know if you saw what Disney just did recently, but, um, you know, Disney put out this huge statement and I thought it was really interesting in which um, – they acknowledged all the ways in which their programming had perpetuated racism um, and white supremacy. And I thought Say it was- Say well, what now? Yeah, you should, uh, it's, you should check the link I'm out. I'm looking it up right now. Not only did they acknowledge it, but then they put in, um, in that acknowledgement, they put in some of the images that they'd used in their cartoons and their movies and animations and all that. And so you got to see the role of Dumbo and how that played out and Jim Crow and all of that. Um, and mm -hmm. different kinds of, you know, I mean, you know, Disney's notorious around mirror, mirror on the wall and all this kind of stuff. But um, so it was really I took a whole college course on this situation. Right. Yeah. Check. So it's, I mean, it, talk about deep, right? So mm -hmm. Disney did, they acknowledged it. They provided examples. And then they, what they had said in the letter was, we're not removing these movies. Instead, we're going to put some kind of caption in the beginning of every movie that says more or less, Hey, this movie has racist depictions in it. Da, 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 da. Um, and I thought it was interesting, you know, do you move it? Do you take it out? You just remove Dumbo completely. Do you keep it in there with that and force conversations? That's the choice they went. So it was less about for me in this moment, the choice to keep it or not. But what I did is I wanted to bring that to the marketing team so that they could begin to see that you can acknowledge racism. You can acknowledge that you didn't know, and um or did know and did it anyways um and i and as white folks you profited billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars off of this level of racism that's just how it shows up in your animations but how it shows up in the makeup of your organization all that kind of stuff right and you can you can learn from it so instead of hiding from it instead of saying like oh we didn't do it, all that kind of stuff and sitting in, or just like feeling really shameful about it and just sitting in mm -hmm. shame and just saying, I feel bad. We're bad. You know, we'll move on. You can name it. You can begin to address it. Um, and you don't have to just stick in shame forever. Like you can feel shameful. It's like, I have a moment of shame with Froaney when she says that stuff or when she brings it up, when it comes up and you know, when it does come up still and I have a moment of embarrassment and that's for me to deal with. And it's also for me to move through, right? Like right. to get to a place of new action. So if I just sit in shame and guilt, I'm just going to be shameful and guilty and probably shut down in a lot of different ways. If I can acknowledge it, 
work through it however I need to work through it, I can move to how do I want to be a new, the new way of being? How do I want to take this shame and learn from it and be differently? So the same thing with organizations, if we can get out of kind of fear of not knowing, the fear, the lack of a roadmap, if we can get out of the shame and guilt that this stuff kind of proposes, we can begin to step into new ways of being as a culture with each other and new ways of operating as an institution. And that's the power, that's the transformation, right? Like mm-hmm. is the new, what does equity actually look like? What does inclusion actually look like? And beginning to possibility walk that um, and try things on. They're not going to work. They'll work a little bit, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's messy and it's unorganized and it's all the things that whiteness typically doesn't like. Um, mm-hmm. But if they can hold on to that space long enough, something emerges. Something starts to emerge that you probably that like CEI um, oftentimes what emerges in organizations isn't necessarily what we even thought it was going to be right on the roadmap. It's something that I wouldn't have seen before. Some stuff happens, people leave, um, new people come in, you know, all, whatever it ends up being, something emerges out of a sustained commitment to equity and inclusion that you wouldn't have yeah. seen before. But you have to sustain that commitment. Um, and you have to keep trying and learning. You can't be stuck in the shame when you make a mistake. Um, although you need to probably feel ashamed when you do, but you need to yeah. move through it, um, you know, and get to something new. So there's something there. Man, this was so much more than I could ever have hoped for on a Sunday morning. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it This has been such, such a pleasure. Um, I knew it was going to be good. Um, I think we got to some really, really important things that I could have you opine on for days. <laughs> but you know, we have to we have to move on as well. That's I right. need to go okay. <laughs> put in eye drops and you know <laughs> splash my face with water. Um, but this was really, really good, honey. If I I really thank you, thank you so much for everything you do. It means a lot, and I know it's not easy by any means. But if it was easy, everyone would do it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I love, I love getting a chance to connect in this way. I know we both care about it so much. So thank you. Whew. That was something. You can find out more about Hanif and the Center for Equity and Inclusion at CEIPDX.org or visit the raceequalityproject.com and head to our marketplace page you'll find the center in our organization's collection page. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you next time.